The first reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. My name is Jonathan Hoffman, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke in a series titled The Way of Salvation, because Jesus, who is still alive, it's not just something that happens once a year at Easter, uh, Jesus has opened a way for men and women to be saved. And the Gospel of Luke is inviting us into an understanding of what it means to walk on this way and to be saved. Uh, this morning's message is titled Believing Jesus, and that's because salvation starts by taking Jesus at his word. This is the good news today, is that in order to be saved, you don't have to start by cleaning yourself up. You don't have to begin by going on a pilgrimage, by hiking up a mountain, by attaining to the next level of whatever it is. Salvation starts just by believing Jesus. And it's not believing in Jesus, believing Jesus. See, we can believe in something. I can believe in justice, or I can believe in mercy or love. I can believe in the faithfulness of my boss to me at work. I can believe in something, but to believe a person means you trust them implicitly. 
And our journey of transformation is only going to go as far as we believe Jesus. I encourage you as we look through this text today to think through in your life the, the places where your walk with God seemed to get a bit stuck, <laughs> where you seem to, to lose traction. Living out in the bush for a number of years, you, you learn to quickly discern which sort of roads will give you traction and which sort of roads will not give you traction. Gravel is not the best surface to drive on. It's not smooth and it's not often very comfortable. You know, sometimes it's nicer to just roll along in the red dirt. But let me tell you, when it's raining, you're very grateful for the gravel because you get traction in the gravel. When it rains and you're trying to ride down a red dirt road, <laughs> you don't go very far. You get a bit messy. Faith, trusting Jesus, Taking him at his word is what is the first, the initial steps as part of salvation. Now, many of you may have got an email from me uh, a couple days ago, yesterday. Uh, here at Windsor District Baptist Church, our vision is to see all people, men, women, children, transformed by God's word and his spirit for faith in Christ. And over the last 12 months or so, we've been trying to understand how this process of transformation works, what it looks like, what, what areas of our life it encompasses. And so as a leadership, as a ministry, we have been looking through these various components, and we've kind of come up with this, this cycle graphic that shows what we understand from God's word to be this process of transformation. You'll notice the gospel is at the center. The gospel is God's power. It's the announcement, it's the word of God enlivened by his spirit as it encounters men and women. The gospel is calling us, it is strengthening us, and we have to make a response to it. But as we encounter the gospel, it interacts with our life in different phases, in our personal life, in our community of faith, and in our public life. And this, over the next several weeks, we're going to be trying to understand through Luke's gospel how we are transformed, and we'll see, as, we, as I just mentioned, that the beginning of transformation starts with belief. Belief. It's a personal encounter with God, and it starts at the level of belief. Next week, we'll see that it moves into embracing, embracing our identity in Christ, embracing what God has to say to us. We'll come back to this later, but as we prepare to go into the text this morning, I want you to see that this account in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, it records Jesus' initiative, Jesus' initiative to engage Peter's faith in three stages of increasing imposition. We all have that person in our life who loves to just impose things on us. <laughs> Maybe they drop an untimely comment. Maybe they say something to us, they, they spring something on us, they just show up at your house, they, they impose on you, and it's, it's a little bit like, oh, I didn't realize we were going to go there. I didn't realize this is, this, this is going to happen. Well, you're going to see Jesus three times in this text. He's imposing on Peter, and each time he's imposing to a greater de degree or to a greater extent. He's going to impose on his availability, he's going to impose on Peter's authority, and he's actually going to impose... Uh, his kingdom on Peter. But as we prepare to come to the text, I want you to picture yourself by that Sea of Galilee 
as Jesus is speaking the word of God. And let's go to prayer right now that we might hear him again today. Father, would you bless us as we come to the word? We're thankful that Jesus spoke the word to us. And we're thankful for his spirit who indwells us, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in your eternal kingdom. We pray that your spirit would speak to us of spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Father, we get so many words in this world today, but it's your word that it gives life. And so we pray it would achieve its effect in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus initiates first in verses one to three, and he's going to impose on Peter's availability, and he's going to impose on our availability as well. Uh, and here we see in verses one to three that, that Jesus presents himself as, as a teacher worth hearing. A teacher worth hearing. Verses one to three. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Notice how Luke connects those two things. You know, whenever Jesus speaks, the word of God is proclaimed. He saw, that's Jesus, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. What's fascinating about this account is Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus was saying other than it was the word of God. Instead, he's showing us what Jesus is doing. So you're there, you're, you're at the lake. I, I read this week that Israeli scholars have found the location where they believe this, this message might have taken place. And, and given the, the, the geographic nature, the, the geographic character of this spot by the lake, they reckon that it was possible to be heard by thousands of people in the natural acoustics. Uh, and so they think they found this, they found this place. It's uh, a little bit adjacent from Capernaum. Jesus was recently in Capernaum. He had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And so he would have been known to Peter. Uh, Peter was aware of him and his ministry and what he'd done for him. But Jesus, as he's teaching, he sees these two boats there that were left over after a night's fishing. The implication here is that they're done. They've been fishing all night, and now it's over. Now we know based on the description of washing the nets, that actually tells us a bit about the type of nets they were using. It's called a trammel net. I'm not a fisherman, so don't quiz me on this in three weeks time, right? But it was called a trammel net. And in a trammel net, it was a very sophisticated type of net where it was weighted at the bottom and there was floats attached at the top. And so it would create this kind of wall in the water. And the wall had actually three segments to it. And the outer segments were more porous, the holes were bigger, than the internal segment of the wall. So the idea is that the fish would swim through the outer net quite easily. Then, as they would pass through the smaller net, they would get scared and they would keep swimming and they would pull the small net through the other side of the third wall. And then the fishermen would pull them up and then they would remove the fish from this wall. It was a trammel net. It was very expensive. It was a very sophisticated uh, form of fishing. And it was the only real type of net that needed to be washed the next day. 
But because the trammel net, it, its character, its nature, it was so wide, it had to be used at night. And so the idea is it's the next day, it's the morning, they're cleaning their nets, the job's done. And Jesus sees two boats and he takes an opportunity. He saw an opportunity and he poses on Peter's, uh, Peter's availability. Jesus meets Peter in the ordinary, everyday goings of his life. Peter had no idea how his life was going to change that day. He'd clocked out. He was gathering the things from his locker. <laughs> he was taking off the name badge, right? The nets are being washed. The boat's on the shore. And here comes Jesus. And he says, hey, let me use your boat. It's subtle, imperceptible. Maybe this reminds you of your encounter with the Lord. It wasn't something really overt. Somebody just said to you one day, hey, do you want to come along to this meeting? Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? Are you free? And in these small moments of availability, Jesus inserts himself. Jesus sees an opportunity. Jesus comes in the everyday and in the ordinary. He does the same thing today. So many times we believe that we have to manufacture the sacred space so that we can transcend and enter into the reality of the creator and the holy God. But as the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is near to us. Yes, he is high, he is holy, he is lofty. Like Solomon would say, we, we, we can't build anything to contain God, to, to, to limit him. But there is an accessibility in that he is near to everyone. As Paul would say in Acts chapter 17, as he's trying to, to relate to people who don't have a Judeo-Christian theology, and he says to them, God appointed the boundaries and the times of people so that they might seek him out. Not that he is very far from any of us. Here is Jesus teaching, and in his teaching, he sees an opportunity. He gets Peter's boat. He sits in the boat, and, and this is the seated position of a teacher, and from that position, he speaks and he communicates the word of God. But I suggest to you the first level, the first, the first engagement with our faith with Jesus is, is he a teacher worth hearing? Jesus asked Peter to make his boat available so that the sermon could keep going. Is Jesus a teacher worth hearing? This is, this is the first basic entry level. If you don't have time to listen to the teaching of Jesus, you will not become a disciple of Jesus. This is, this is point Point one, this is the starting ground. When your ears are hit with his truth, what happens? Is it a, I know this, okay, that's great, move on. Oh, this is what he's supposed to say, yep, yep. This is what rabbis do. Because it might impose on your availability to give him a hearing. Which leads us to, the second initiative that Jesus takes in verse 4. And here we see that Jesus presents himself as a master worth obeying. 
Not only is he a teacher worth hearing, he's a master worth obeying. He imposes his authority. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. There's other people in the boat. The second verb there, let down the nets, is a plural. But he speaks to Peter, put out into deep water. Simon answered, Master or Lord. No, sorry, this is Master. The Lord comes later. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Again, I'm not a fisherman, but I've been told that something happens to a fisherman after they've had a night or a morning of unsuccessful fishing. They're not necessarily in the greatest of moods. And again, I haven't been on enough boats to have actually attempted this, but you might want to, to go try and tell the fisherman who hasn't caught anything to go back out again because you know where the fish are biting. Peter responds here like any of us would respond. Hey, (laughs) I've been fishing all night. I haven't caught anything. What, what is Jesus doing here? He's inserting himself into Peter's professional expertise. He is speaking into the place where Peter feels that he has the authority. He has the experience. He has the skills. He even owns the tools in this case. And here comes this carpenter walking into the fisher boat, fisherman's boat and saying, you know what, let's go back out and let's fish some more. You can almost see Peter rolling his eyes. Does he realize that these are the nets that we use to fish at night? You can't use these nets in the day because the fish see them and they swim away? What is he thinking? And whether there was a hint of sarcasm in it or not, I don't know, we'll never know. But the truth is, Peter acquiesces. He says, but at your word, I will do it. At your word, I will do it. It's one thing to give Jesus a hearing. It's one thing to listen to his teaching. It's one thing to sit, to sit under the gospel and to read the scriptures and to say, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to, to meditate over these words. I'm going to meditate over this truth. It's a whole nother thing to let Jesus tell you how to do your job. It's a whole nother thing to let the voice of Jesus speak into being a doctor or a banker or a plumber or a parent. It's a whole nother thing for Jesus to speak into the thing that you think sets you apart in society. To go against the customs and the traditions. You can almost imagine Peter looking out at the other fishermen who are hauling their boats away and they're just laughing. Peter's thinking, man, I'm going to get it tomorrow when I show up to work. Here we go, rowing out back into the water. You can almost hear the comrades laughing from the shore. This guy has lost his mind. Why? Is there anything spiritual about this command? Hey, let's go fishing some more. Jesus doesn't say, now, Peter, I'm about to do something miraculous here. I'm going to multiply fish. I'm going to do this sort of recreating act. You know how the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and and how 
in that act of creation, I spoke and, and, and creatures came out of the sea. You, you remember that? Well, Peter, I'm going to sort of recreate that here, and I'm going to use your boat to do that, and then this is all going to be a metaphor that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life. So, that in mind, can you please just put out a little bit? But what do we do when Jesus comes into our workplace? What do we do when Jesus comes into our home and says, I'm leading you this way? We say, well, look, I need to see how this fits into the whole picture of theology. I need to see how this all fits into the grand scheme of things. Where is this going to go? I mean, doctrines have been built on our unwillingness to trust Christ in new circumstances. But what is he really doing? Jesus is saying to Peter, I know you're a fisherman, but I made the fish. I'm a better fisherman than you. He's a better banker than you. He's a better real estate agent. He's a better professor. He's a better mother. He's a better father. He is a better pastor. He's a better assistant doctor, lawyer, teacher, whatever you think, whatever you call yourself to be, he is better at that than you are. And so many of us get stuck between this, this first and this second step. We're happy to give Jesus a hearing as a teacher. I carried around a Bible in my back pocket for years because I was so interested in the words and the teachings of Jesus. And I would pull it out and I would read it. But it took so long for me to actually let Jesus speak into how I went about my life and what I actually did. Faith says, because you say so. Because you say so, Lord. Literally, at your word. At your word, I'll let down the nets. Now, from a human perspective, it feels ludicrous. But from a faith perspective, it's incredibly simple and it's incredibly liberating. Luke doesn't just tell us, well, they caught a bunch of fish. He actually describes it for us. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish, their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to help them, and they came and filled both boats so that the boat began to sink. Jesus is such a good fisherman, he's breaking Peter's means of fishing. <laughs> he is straining the means of production. He is so successful at this that Peter is watching his whole business perhaps go under because there's no way he can duplicate. There's no way he can carry on. In other words, Jesus is so successful at this. It transcends what Peter could even accommodate. In this, Peter makes an interesting response. And here we see Jesus' third initiative where he presents himself as a king worth following. A king worth following. 
And here he's going to impose his kingdom mandate. Note, when Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. He's changed his title. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. The scene here is, Peter is recognizing that he is not just in the presence of a great fisherman, he's in the presence of God himself. Most commentators, when they read this account, they hear the echoes from the encounter that Isaiah had in the temple in chapter 6 of his prophecy. You may recall that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah got a vision of God in his throne room. And it said his, the train of his robe filled the whole temple with glory. And do you recall his first words after that? He said, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now Luke is doing something here in recounting this for us. In a few chapters, we're going to hear Jesus very succinctly describe his mandate as, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And, and here Luke is already setting the table for us and he's showing that here is the first one who encounters Jesus and doesn't see Jesus as his meal ticket but, but sees himself rightly before Jesus and saying, I'm a sinner. This is theophany. This is a vision of God himself and Peter's response is, I'm not worthy. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody so great that automatically you begin thinking about your flaws? Maybe you're in middle school and the prettiest girl in the school walked up to you and asked to borrow your pencil. And all of a sudden, you went dumbstruck. You didn't know what to say, right? You started thinking about, oh, why did I put this shirt on today? Right? I, I, my, my hair is terrible. What's, go, what, what's going on here, right? You get in the presence of somebody that you think is magnificent and you suddenly start feeling inadequate. Maybe you bumped into a famous person and your buddies are like, hey, go, go up, get their autograph. Go, you know, go, go do that. And you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. We get this. We get this instinctively that we're in the presence of, of, some, of something great or someone great and, and we, we suddenly become aware of our deficiencies. But do you have that awareness when you come to God? This is a faithful initial encounter. And what it's telling us, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus leading you into salvation is not an act of merit, it's an act of grace. It is a grace that Jesus is in the boat with Peter. It's a grace that Jesus came to you. Stop thinking that you contrived it. Stop thinking that you earned it. Stop thinking that it's because of what a great student or parent or child you were. Or it's, it's not that at all. Jesus comes to you and it's an act of grace. And if you truly see it for what it is, you'll become suddenly aware of your inadequacy and you might actually start mouthing the words that Peter did, which is depart from me, Lord. 
I'm a sinner. I recognize God is other. See, the thing with idols and why we love them so much is because there's this familiarity. You see, we create them. We, we sort of see ourselves in them. But when you come to a holy God, you come to someone who is entirely other. He is holy. You are not. He's perfectly loving. You are not. He is perfectly just. I'm not. And when I encounter this holy God, I suddenly, by God's grace, see just how deficient I am. That is not the time, brothers and sisters, to start justifying yourself. When you feel that inadequacy, when you feel that, that, that emptiness before God, that is not the time to start trying to, to grab for all your human levers of justification and say, well, if I just do this, if I just do this, if I could, uh, th then I'll talk to God, you know? We've all been there, right? You do something you know God doesn't want you to do, and you say, I know what I'll do to get close to God again. I'm going to ignore him for a week. I'm going to ignore God for a week. I'm going to let him cool off. As if to say, he's the one with the problem. No. Faith says, God, you are so other. I, I never had the capacity to come before you, and I'm just going to lay myself before you, and I'm going to confess what I am, which is a sinner. Ironically, Peter says, go away from me. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Ironically, using the same words that the demons did. Depart from me. Get away from us, Jesus. But there's something different here because Peter is not an enemy of Jesus. He just sees his own unworthiness. And as they're astonished, as well as James and John, they're astonished. Then Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Ironically, the man who says, depart from me, Jesus, ends up leaving with Jesus. What grace, what grace Christ gives for us. But don't breeze over this last couple of verses because you may have heard the story in Sunday school or you might have seen a flannel graph or <laughs> something like that. Because this, brothers and sisters, is absolutely profound. Jesus takes the initiative again. And here, his initiative is not simply to impose on his availability for a period of time. It's not simply to ask him to do something he wasn't willing to do before. Here, the initiative of Jesus is to overlay his kingdom in a way that Peter will understand. He outlays the vision of his mission using Peter's own profession as a metaphor. He says, from now on, you're going to fish for people. Don't be afraid. Literally, the term fish means to catch alive. That's exactly what this is translated as. Uh, if you were to read ancient literature around the time, this would have been a familiar phrase, not so much in fishing per se, but it was a prisoner of war term. And so the idea was that if you captured somebody as a prisoner of war, you fished them. 
So you fish them. It doesn't really make much sense to us because we only think of fishing in terms of water and, and, and the, the animal. But here, it's a metaphor for catching people alive. Jesus says, from now on, you're going to catch people alive. And what a fitting metaphor. Fitting because... Jesus has just caught Peter. <laughs> Fitting also because Jesus understands his mission in terms of warfare as well. You see, you're caught, you're caught as a prisoner of war. If you, you're caught alive, the implication is you could have been killed. The enemy could have destroyed you. But instead, you've been taken captive. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be catching people alive. They could have been destroyed. They could have perished. They could have not survived the onslaught that's coming. But you're going to catch them alive. And they'll become prisoners in my kingdom. They'll belong to me. From now on, you're going to do this, Peter. Now, what's their conclusion here? So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. You see, it's one thing to give Jesus a hearing. It's another thing to trust him in an instance. But here, again, in this increasing imposition that Jesus makes, he in effect renders Peter's previous life irrelevant. Think about it. Peter has just had his most successful day fishing ever. Think about the haul that he just brought in. And then there it is. It's on the shore. Who of you would leave at the height of your profession? Who of you would leave that at the moment you're, you're, you're most successful, however you measure success in your industry or in your life, who of you at your most successful, if Jesus said, well, from now on, we're going to go do something else, would say, right now. This isn't Peter giving this, this isn't Luke giving the story a happy ending. This is Luke showing radical abandonment to Christ. As one commentator put it, he said, answering the call to follow Jesus in this gospel means detaching oneself from one's former life, family, home, livelihood, and as will become increasingly clear, possessions. And he walks away. And you say, what could cause somebody to leave their former life behind? Why would anybody at the height of their career, at the height of their wealth, I mean, it's not like fishermen were really, really rich, but who, who, like, if fishing's your industry, this is the day to be a fisherman, right? Think of how much he could have walked away with from the market. He could have set his recovering mother-in-law mother up in a detached wing of their house. He could have constructed a whole other wing. Maybe he could have, you know, started a relief mission. He doesn't even take the fish. He leaves the boats, he leaves the fish, and as the other gospels say, he leaves his dad. They left their father. In the ancient world, if you were going to identify yourself, you'd identify yourself primarily by who your parents were, secondarily by what you did. And here, Peter, James, and John, they leave 
the father, James and John leave their father, and they leave their profession. It's abandonment. It's a total reorientation. Now, why do you do that? And I've been racking my brain. How do we actually, how do we understand this? The only way you do this is if a king calls you. Think about it. This is what the draft is in wartime. We're, celeb- we're re- remembering, not celebrating, that sounds really bad. We're commemorating the death of the Duke, the Queen's husband. And I haven't watched all of the crown, but I've watched enough to know, watched the early seasons to know. When called by his queen, he was asked to lay things aside. When conscripted into an army, if you're going to be a soldier or a knight, you come under the king's service, and who you were before doesn't matter. You leave and you go. You see, that's the only thing that could justify abandonment like that. And as we bring this to a conclusion, I just want to reiterate for you how Jesus met them in the ordinary. As you imagine yourself by the Sea of Galilee that day, this day started with frustration. They were up all night. They didn't catch any fish. And in the midst of that frustration, in the midst of packing up, in the midst of moving on, Jesus makes a very small, simple request. Hey, can I borrow your boat? Yeah, sure. Oh, now that he's got the boat, he wants a little bit more. All right, hey, actually, let's go back out. Well, that's a bit crazy, Jesus. And by the end of it all, as he sees the power of Christ, as he sees in him not just a great teacher, not just somebody with authority, but as he sees in him God himself, Lord. Every other time Lord has been used in this gospel so far, it's been used to refer to the Lord God. And there's no reason why we should interpret it differently here. Peter sees in Jesus his king and his creator. And that's the only way we justify, we we can explain his abandonment, his abandonment of everything he knew. And so as we take you back to this picture of transformation and what happens, it starts with the call of Christ and it starts with you being asked to believe Jesus. Do you believe him? How far are Are you willing to trust Jesus' initiative? To what extent should we allow Jesus to influence our lives? Because this is not just about believing in Jesus. It's about hearing him and trusting him and walking with him. See, the good news is you don't have to clean yourself up. You you don't have to go through this set of hoops. You just, you trust and you go. I'm going to invite the band to come forward now. And I pray this picture sticks in your minds this week. I pray that you see God as someone who is lofty and high and other, but I pray also that you see him as one who came down to you in grace. May you see his bountiful provision, but may that provision not be merely a means to greater wealth or security, but may it be 
a testimony to you that your God is in your midst. Let's pray. Jesus, would you do your work among us? Bless us and encourage us, I pray. Help us to trust you in all things. Amen.